0: This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your free trial with this amazing service by clicking the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Colbert Report, Countdown, the Rachel Maddow Show, the Onion Radio News, on the Media, and the Daily Show.
1: summer is here, and that only means one thing, exorcisms. It is so much more fun forcing the demon out of a possessed body when you can do it on the patio. You don't have to clean the vomit off your walls. But today, the secular Susies are up in arms over this video of an exorcism in Bridgeport, Connecticut, meant to cast the homosexual demon out of a teenage boy. The full clip can be seen on Sunday's episode of America's Least Tolerant Home Videos. Now, the boys' defenders say you can't change someone's sexuality through prayer. And they have a point. It hasn't worked for the millions of teenage girls praying over Adam Lambert. That's a bit of a shocker for me, by the way. But what people are ignoring here is the real danger posed by casting the demon out of this teenager. Now there's a gay demon on the loose. Come on. I mean, this poltergeist was perfectly harmless inside that gay teen, but now it's on the prowl looking to inhabit a new host. He could come for any one of us. Fortunately, I have everything I need to protect myself against gay demons I have a copy of the straight Bible larger than life the biography of Wilt Chamberlain I have this Makita cordless drill with a 5 8 bit oh wait that might attract a lesbian demon and of course an autographed photo of Charlie Sheen to Stephen, got a run in the middle of a three-way love chart I mean, three-way, one of them got to be a girl, right?
2: What your kids don't stop running, your smile won't stop coming. When you take a line excursion, it's just a slight diversion. You might come out a winner in a bullfight in Spain. Paint your face like a engine, dance for some rain. up your eyes, excitement would like to be your friend, try a on for size, it may lead you to the rainbow's end, you got your ticket to
3: glide.
4: at a meeting with Palestinian leaders in June 2003. Then-President Bush reportedly having claimed that God told him to go to war. Mr. Bush reported as having said, quote, God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan, and I did. And then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq, and I did. Our fifth story on the countdown, it turns out that God received a rather hefty assist from Donald Rumsfeld, newly released memos showing that Mr. Bush's defense secretary, having placed on the cover of his daily reports to the president, biblical passages and corresponding war imagery that carefully framed the mission in Iraq as nothing less than a Christian crusade, what another faith might call a jihad. Mr. Rumsfeld, apparently having left nothing to chance, not only often having hand-delivered to the White House his daily top secret briefings for President Bush, but also having spiffed them up with the cover pages that matched photos from the day's previous days' war efforts with scripture from the Bible. Among the examples, March 17, 2003, two days before the invasion, servicemen praying, their heads bowed before their rifles, quote, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am, Lord, send me, Isaiah 6, verse 8. April 7, 2003, as U.S. forces launched their assault on Baghdad, a screen grab of Saddam Hussein Hussein on Iraqi TV, quote, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men, 1 Peter 2, verse 15. April 8th, 2003, one day before the fall of Iraq's capital city, an American tank passing beneath Baghdad's hands, victory monument in what is now part of the U.S. enclave called the Green Zone, quote, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith, Isaiah 26, verse 2. GQ's Robert Draper reporting that at least one Muslim analyst at the Pentagon, having been greatly offended by the cover pages, others having been privately concerned about what the fallout might have been if those images had been leaked during a war against an Islamic nation. When some actually took the trouble to complain, no small thing in the Bush administration, they were told that the practice would continue because Rumsfeld, President Bush, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Richard Myers, all appreciated the cover pages. GQ also reporting that the cover pages were not Secretary Rumsfeld's direct invention. Instead, they were the brainchild of the Pentagon's director of intelligence, Major General Glenn Sheffer Nor were they even the defense secretary's style, Mr. Rumsfeld not being one to flaunt his own religious views. It was, however, President Bush's style. Mr. Rumsfeld writes Draper likely having viewed the scripture as a way to make a personal connection with his president. Uh, now to call on our own political analyst, Richard Wolf Richard, good evening. Good evening, Keith. I've seen a lot of interpretation of this as, as proselytizing, as uh, I used that term earlier about uh, uh, kind of combining in an in, in, in in unacceptable fashion religion and government. But is it, is, it's actually a little more cynical than that, isn't it? I mean, whatever you think of Bush's faith or its relevance to governance or war, wasn't Rumsfeld basically exploiting it?
5: Yeah, well, first of all, we have to salute Robert Draper and GQ magazine because they've really filled a very important piece that's been missing in the puzzle all along. Why invade Iraq? Why stick with a war that was going disastrously wrong? Religious faith and this cynical, manipulative appeal to religious faith is clearly a big part of it. And, and yes, it's exploitative. We knew at the time, those of us covering the White House, that one of the tactics Rumsfeld used to use was to portray his policy proposals uh, to the president as being bold on the Idea that anything that was bold, the president would sign up to. Well, here we have something, uh, frankly, more shocking and troubling. This idea that there was this religious infusion. Now we know Rumsfeld didn't feel it, but he was clearly exploiting uh, the the faith aspect of this president. And one thing to be to remain uh, to remind ourselves, though, it, it, the president had the opportunity to say no to any of mm-hmm. this, and he wasn't just being manipulated by Rumsfeld. He was also being manipulated by Cheney, who, of course was the one time protege and then mentor of yep. one uh, don Rumsfeld but th- this wasn't
4: a, do, do we think this had, these cover letters had a practical impact on this on the war on the conduct on the on the the policy I mean it, uh, Mr. Bush could not have thought that those cover letters themselves were the work of God I mean he had to have known they were the hand of Rumsfeld
5: right Yeah, absolutely. But there is a subtle sort of gray area about a president who sees himself or saw himself as an instrument of God's will uh, and being willingly, I think, manipulated here uh, uh, along these lines. Remember that there was an essential leap of faith here, not just about the intelligence, but the purpose of the war, uh, the reason for sticking with it. And uh, the president was kind of explicit about this. He said his faith was his comfort uh, uh, that led him to stick with a war and with the troops when everyone else said things were going so horribly wrong. So, I don't think this is a minor thing, but yeah, he didn't think that this was God's hand, but he thought he was operating on some sort of divine mission. Mm.
4: And amazingly, the the, the cover pages uh, may not be the worst of what is contained within the GQ article. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld, we have now learned in this article, held up the deployment of active duty forces to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, including the entire fleet of the search and rescue hol- helicopters, because he didn't believe in using active duty military personnel on principle. Uh, that's you know, th- it's, it's almost too bad these are in the same article because that's not going to get the attention it
5: deserves, is it? Uh, no, it's not. Although. He- he was not the only person who was tied up in this stupid legalese and allegedly principled. Really, they, none of them wanted to respond until it was too late. Uh, blame Rumsfeld all you like, but there was a collective failure there, and that goes all the way to the top of that old administration.
4: Uh, last point, quickly, are we worried still about the reaction um, in the Arab world about the, those cover pages even now?
5: Absolutely. You know, you think that the debate last week about those photos, the Obama administration said they didn't want to release. They were worried about their reaction. This is way more damaging than another round of, of photos because it casts doubt on the mission because there are troops in the field right now who are going to have their motives questioned because of this.
4: MSNBC political analyst Richard Wolf, as always, thank you for your insight, sir. Have a good evening. Thank you, Keith. The Bible might be the most quoted, least clearly understood book of this time. For a little perspective, a little informed analysis on what is actually in there on these subjects, war and divine guidance, let me welcome the Reverend Dr. Welton Gaddy, a Baptist minister from Louisiana and president of the Interfaith Alliance. Uh, Reverend, thank you for your time tonight and your insight. Thanks, Keith. Uh, the first question here, in sum, if you can do that, and I know that's always a dangerous phrase to use, but what, is the, what does the Bible actually say about war and about Jesus' words on that subject?
3: it says different things at different times Mm -hmm. the uh, Bible spans thousands of years it has different kinds of literature and so you can go in the Bible and find pretty much what you want to be said on any subject I think what you have to do is look at the whole sweep of the Bible's message and what you find is instruction to treat God as God, to treat government as government, and to treat other people with dignity and respect. Those scripture passages on those memos were not efforts to explore biblical truth. They were efforts to use Mm -hmm. that which is holy to endow with sanctity a political decision that was questionable at best and an invasion into a nation that was based on lies. If you want to be religious, you go not just to quoting scripture, you act like the scripture tells you to act.
4: Well, let me let me ask you for an interpretation of one of those uh, one of those quotations that was used on, on the cover letter. Uh, Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. As a caption for this illustration of an American tank entering what is in essence Saddam Hussein's parade ground, is the quotation misused, or is it as you say you can find anything you want uh, in there?
3: Keith, I think it's a prostitution of religion. Mm. Uh, if you look at the images and the scriptures that are associated with each one of them, you see a studied effort to identify the United States as the righteous nation, the military strategy of invasion as an act of God. And what that does is it says, if you question me, you're questioning God. Mm -hmm. And if you oppose this war then you have to be evil because I'm good. There is a theocratic tendency to this, and as you well know, most people who support a theocracy want to be Theo.
4: Whenever I hear anybody say God told them to do something, in this case, the quotes that were attributed to President Bush in 2003, I'm reminded of something that a very religious friend of mine told me, that when somebody swears and the answer is do not take the name of the Lord in vain, he said that's not what that means. It's not about swearing. That that actually
3: means do not say I did it because God told me to. Is that a correct interpretation? That's a very correct interpretation. It is saying don't associate the name of God with behavior that is in some way the opposite of God, blasphemy to God. And what you what you do in being true to faith is allowing faith to critique you as well as affirm you. And this was a studied effort to use faith to endow one particular strategy that was bad politically bad internationally and Keith even extremely dangerous for our military. And it was not an isolated incident. It was a strategy of propaganda for that war. And unfortunately, it is still going on in the American military, uh, a use of religion for very political purposes.
4: Last question, sir. Is there anything in scripture about what Mr. Rumsfeld apparently did to take somebody's faith and use uh, biblical passages to kind of activate
3: it for your own purposes? You know, the great words about faith in scripture are are not really religious words. They are words about humility, about openness, about inclusion, about honesty. And if you want to know how religious a person is, you don't use the terminology of religion. You use the practicality of religion and see whether or not is building up or tearing down honest or dishonest.
1: Just a few, few honest words
6: is all I need.
0: This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time all while enjoying a secure, online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com
3: Just
7: tell me, won't you America, meet Senator Tom Coburn. Senator Coburn is a conservative Republican from Oklahoma, previously known outside Oklahoma, mostly for raising the rest of the country's collective eyebrows from time to time. Like in 2004, when Dr. Coburn told an AP reporter he thought that doctors who performed abortions should be executed. Or when at a campaign event the same year, he said it was impossible to use the bathrooms in many Oklahoma junior high schools nowadays because of what he called the rampant lesbianism and of course there was the time in 1997 when he denounced nbc for airing the movie schindler's list before ultimately apologizing he said the oscar-winning holocaust drama was just full of vile language nudity and violence it was a film about the holocaust But Tom Coburn is now famous as the other senator in the still unfolding John Ensign sex scandal. Doug Hampton, the husband of the woman Senator Ensign admits to sleeping with, claims that Senator Coburn tried to negotiate an end to the affair and that as part of those negotiations, Senator Coburn encouraged Senator Ensign to write that now public handwritten apology letter to his mistress and to pay her family restitution. Now, Mr. Coburn, excuse me, Dr. Coburn issued a Statement denying all of those allegations, saying, quote, I was never present when the letter was written, never made any assessment of paying anybody anything. Those are untruths. But Dr. Coburn won't give any details on what he did say to Senator Ensign about the affair, because he says, quote, I was counseling him as a physician and as an ordained deacon. That is privileged communication that I will never reveal to anybody, not to the ethics committee, not to a court of law, not to anybody. Given that Tom Coburn is an OBGYN, it's not exactly clear in what capacity he might have been... Reading Senator Ensign? It's also not clear why his doctor-patient confidentiality would preclude him from answering questions about the Ensign affair, but would allow him to make lots of statements about the affair that portray himself in a really good light. And about the other hat that Dr. Coburn says he was wearing when he counseled Senator Ensign, that of Deacon, well, that brings into focus a religious group that appears to be the connective tissue linking key players in this scandal. It's a secretive Christian organization known alternately as The Fellowship or The Family. They run a house known as C Street, where Senators Coburn and Ensign live together with other lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Doug Hampton talked about C Street and its members' role in the sex scandal between his wife and Senator Ensign in an interview with our previous guest, John Ralston, of the Las Vegas Sun. In February, uh, you contact some people, and I believe they were affiliated with this Christian Fellowship organization, yeah. yes? It's it's more about
1: where they live and how these men operate in their life. They're, they're great men. They have a good heart. There's Why did you contact them? Because they're close friends. They, they're a part of the men who live at C Street. What did you want them to do? Confront John.
7: So what exactly is C Street and what is its role in the lives of Senators Ensign and Coburn and in the ongoing life of this scandal? Well, joining us now is Jeff Charlotte. He's a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine and he's author of the book, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power. It's just out in paperback and is highly recommended by me personally. As part of the research for the book, Jeff lived among the family and saw many of its actions firsthand. Mr. Charlotte, thanks very much for coming on the show.
8: Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Um,
7: What? is C Street? I know it's a house on C Street in Washington. How is it part of the family?
8: Well, The C Street house is actually it's a former convent. Now it's registered as a church. And it's run by the family and used by them to provide housing for six to eight congressmen at any given time and to provide spiritual counsel to these congressmen, um, which all sounds fine so far. What makes it a little bit different than other Christian conservative organizations? Two things. You said that it's secretive. Indeed, the leader of the group, describes, he says, the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence you'll we'll have. And the other thing is the nature of the influence they want to have. I got to sit in on one of these spiritual counseling sessions between the leader of the family and uh, Congressman Todd hart when I visited the Seastree House. I actually met Senator Ensign there. Uh, as the leader of the family was counseling uh, Congressman Thart, who had this very standard issue, bill of issues uh, related to the Christian right, and he said, you've got to have a bigger vision of what, uh, what we're talking about here. He just called he called it Jesus plus nothing and he said it's a sort of a totalitarian idea of Christianity. And he gave us examples men who he believed understood the way power should be wielded. He actually gave us examples Hitler, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden, and
7: Lenin. Wow. When I when I read your book, um, The Family, when it first came out in hardback, Jeff, I, my, my notes on, um, I write notes in the flyleaf about what I was thinking about it, and my notes about it, I went back and looked, where that it was um, essentially to promote, it saw its role as promoting American power worldwide, unfettered capitalism, no unions, no programs to help poor people, all with this idea that godly, powerful, rich men should get as many resources as possible personally, and they should just privately help everyone else. That was the impression that I was left with. Was I close?
8: That's, that's, that's dead on the money. The Family begin, it's, it's the oldest Christian conservative organization in Washington, uh, and it goes back 70 years when the founder believed that God gave him a new revelation, saying that Christianity had gotten it wrong for 2,000 years, and that what most people think of as Christianity as being about, you know, helping the weak and the poor and, and the meek and, and, and the down and out. He believes God came to him one night in April, 1935, and said, um, what Christianity should really be about is building more power for the already powerful and that these powerful men who are chosen by God can then, if they want to, dispense blessings to the rest of us through kind of trickle-down fundamentalism.
7: Well, do you see a connection between that larger sort of power theology and and the fact that neither John Ensign nor Mark Sanford, for that matter, who's also affiliated with the group, um, aren't quitting despite these scandals? Is there something about this type of theology that tells these guys, hey, don't worry about the affair. You know, big picture, you're good. Stay where you are. It's important for you to stay in power.
8: Yeah, no, I, I think actually Governor Sanford made it very clear when he uh, cited uh, uh, King David as an example of the reason why he wasn't going to be resigning office, and that just struck a bell with me because uh, I, the, the King David story is a core teaching of the family. When I first heard it, I was living with the family. Uh, one of the leaders of the family was explaining why King David was important, and he says it's not because he's a good man, it was because he was a bad man, you know, he, he seduced another man's wife, he actually had uh, the husband uh, murdered. and. He wanted to explain why this was a a model, and he says to one of the men in the group, he says, suppose I heard you rape three little girls, what would I think of you? And this guy, being a human being, says, you would think I was a monster. Well, the leader of the family says, no, not at all, because you're chosen. You're chosen by God for leadership, and so the normal rules don't apply.
7: When Senator Jim DeMint of South Carolina talked about his relationship to this group, he, he's also lived at the C Street House. He described the group to the AP years ago, six years ago, by saying, um, quote, we do have a Bible study. Somebody will share a verse or a thought, but mostly it's more of an accountability group to talk about things that are going on in our lives and how we're dealing with them. And you've written that members of the family give each other veto power over their lives, which in for, with these two scandals, I mean, looking at the John Anson scandal, How does a group like that not veto putting the mistress's kid on the Republican Party payroll? How does that not get outed by this group?
8: Well, because the, the responsibility of the other men in your accountability group, and I would say, by the way, you don't have accountability behind closed doors. That's the opposite of accountability. Right. What these other men are doing is they're saying, all right, we're going to look out for you. So it's sort of self-interest by by proxy. And what they're calling accountability uh, is a man might bring to the group, for instance, the fact that he uh, is having an affair with another woman or the fact that he is uh, um, uh, perhaps uh, corrupt in some way and so on. And these- These guys are going to deal with it internally, and very much uh, behind closed doors, the leader of the group actually once said, what we do is, he uses pretentious Latin phrase, beyond the din of the box populi. What he means is beyond the voice of the people.
1: It's not just the Berlin speech, but in Cairo, he said, any world order. He said, any world
9: order.
6: Uh, I'm laying down a beat for you. Keep going.
7: Any world order that elevates
9: one nation over another will fall flat. Oh, snap. I think that goes against the idea of
1: American exceptional.
2: Exceptional fast food and exceptional dance moves.
1: Most Americans believe that this country was gifted by God. blessed nation. And that we are better. Yeah,
2: we the promised
10: land. A sacred place.
6: A prematurely born-again Christian suffers complications. It's The Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Friends and family of devout Christian Daryl Walther are waiting anxiously as his postnatal faith hangs by a thread after being prematurely reborn. While the normal gestation period for the rededication of one's life to Christ often requires several months, Walther's religious rebirth arrived much sooner than expected, resulting in tragic spiritual deformities. Preacher Clifford Ellis.
0: Normally, Daryl would have what we call healing hands, but instead he's got something more like flippers.
6: Walter will be placed in a special Christian facility and taught how to live with his stunted and misshapen soul until he can be sold to a traveling spiritual freak show.
9: Loved and lost And some may say When usually it's nothing Surely you're happy it should be this way I said no and then I shut my myself So drink, drink, drink and be ill tonight
2: From the one
11: you left behind From the one you left behind From the one you left behind
7: We start with a mystery. A mystery that's unfolding alongside the two major political scandals of the summer. It's a mystery that concerns this house at 133 C Street Southeast in Washington, D.C. I'm calling it a house because that's what it looks like to me. And people do live there. But if you consult this building's financial paper trail, you will find that it's actually considered to be a church. That designation makes C Street a convenient tax-free haven for the secretive organization that runs it, an organization known as The Family. It also makes for some awkward tax and income questions for the at least five, probably seven members of Congress who live at the House, in exchange for what appears to be substantially below market rent. As explained by our guest Jeff Charlotte, who secretly infiltrated the family to write a book about them, the C Street House is a former convent. It's used as a sort of subsidized, really upscale dorm for members of Congress who are associated with this powerful, poorly understood religious group. The family and the house at C Street have ended up reluctantly in the headlines now because of the two major politician sex scandals that are embroiling the Republican Party this summer and that have taken two of their report 2012 presidential hopefuls out of political contention. Embattled Nevada Senator John Ensign lives at the C Street House. The husband of Senator Ensign's mistress says that prominent members of the family, this religious group, including the sons of the group's founder, as well as other members of Congress who live at C Street, were both aware of Ensign's secret affair and were involved in his efforts to pay off the mistress and her family as the affair was on again off again ending. Republican Senator Tom Coburn lives at C Street with Ensign. He has said he encouraged Ensign to end the affair but he has denied the allegation that he specifically encouraged Senator Ensign to pay the mistress off to the tune of millions of dollars. South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford mentioned C Street by name in his long public statement of regret about his affair with a woman in Argentina.
9: Did your wife and your family know about the affair before the trip to Argentina? Yeah. Are you? We,
0: we, 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 we've, we've been we've been working through this thing for about the last five months. Um, I've been to a lot of different. I was part of a group called C Street uh, when I was in Washington. It was a Believe it or not, a Christian Bible study, some folks have asked
7: of members of Congress hard questions that um, I think were very, very important, and uh, I've been working with them. Hard questions. Governor Sanford said he was working with C Street somehow about his affair for months. While the affair was ongoing, while it was still secret, and while Governor Sanford continued to lie about it publicly... This is the first point about C Street and the family that makes the group more than just a cameo appearance in both of these sex scandals. In both instances, these powerful family values preaching conservative politicians who were themselves having adulterous affairs say now that they disclosed those affairs to other members of Congress and other people affiliated with the secretive religious group for a long time while the affairs continued and while they were kept secret from the world at large. This organization was allowed to know, but nobody was, Nobody else was. Zach Womp of Tennessee is a Republican member of Congress who says he has lived in the C Street House for 12 years. He told the Knoxville News Sentinel that the members of Congress who live there are sworn to secrecy. Quoting from the News Sentinel... The C Street residents have all agreed they won't talk about their private living arrangements, Wamp said, and he intends to honor that pact. I hate it that John Ensign lives in the house, and this happened because it opens up all of these kinds of questions, Wamp said. But, he said, I'm not going to be the guy who goes out and talks. When you start looking into this organization and its members' oaths to secrecy and fidelity to one another, that I'm not gonna be the one who talks here theme looms very large. But last year, When Jeff Charlotte's book about the family first came out in hardback, the resultant buzz around the secrecy and high-level connections of the family and the C Street House spurred NBC's Andrea Mitchell to obtain sermons of the group's longtime leader, Doug Coe, in order to find out more about what this group's agenda might be. Here's some of what she found.
3: I've seen pictures of the young men in the Red Guard They would bring in this young man's mother. He would take an axe and cut her head off. They have to put the purposes of the Red Guard ahead of their father, mother, brother, sister, and their own life. That was a covenant, a pledge. That's what Jesus said.
7: That's what Jesus said? Here's more from the same sermon.
3: Jesus said, you have to put me before other people, and you have to put me before yourself. Hitler, that was the demand to be in the Nazi party. You have to put the Nazi party and its objectives ahead of your own life and ahead of other people.
7: Again, the man speaking here is Doug Coe. He's the leader of the group, the family, that runs the secretive C Street house that features in the sex scandals of both John Ensign and Mark Sanford. Doug Coe describing the group's mission here in this next clip through his interpretation of the life and
3: words of Jesus. One of the things he said is, if any man comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, brother, sister in his own life, he can't be a disciple. So I don't care what other qualifications you have. If you don't do that, you can't be a disciple of Christ. If you don't hate your father, mother,
7: brother, sister, you can't be a disciple of Christ. Every American's faith is his or her own business. It's our constitutional inheritance as Americans. That there's no religious test for public office. There's no official religion in this country. And every American has a right to believe or not believe, to worship or not worship or uh, as he or she sees fit. Religion is a private matter in this country. and. Religion is the organizing principle of many, many powerful interests in the United States, including this one very connected, sworn to secrecy, ministry only to the powerful that has had a key role in how two major Republican sex scandals have unspooled this summer, that has a theology of power that is poorly understood and cites Hitler a lot, and that currently houses at least seven members of Congress in what it calls a church.
6: It sticks on you And it fixed on you everywhere
3: Woo! If you're in the north He sticks on you
6: there If you're in the south He sticks on you there
2: While the Obama administration is busy rebranding America in the Arab world, a new group of young Arab media stars is working to alter the world's view of Islam. They're sometimes called satellite sheiks since their shows are beamed across the region on satellite channels. They're preaching a moderate version of Islam and producing shows that speak to the everyday lives of young people in the Arab world with Western production values. The number of Arab satellite channels devoted to religion has grown from one to over 30 in the past 10 years, leaving plenty of room for the big tent teachings of these younger, hipper preachers. Robert Worth, Middle East correspondent for the New York Times, profiled one of the most popular of these so-called satellite sheiks, Ahmed al Shagari. Wirth says Shigari's success stems from his talent for relating Islam to the real world.
9: You know, he'll quote a Quranic passage and say, you know, it's against Islam to waste and not to care for the poor. And then he'll go to some wealthy neighborhood in Jeddah where he lives and show you know, huge amounts of food being tossed into a dumpster or something like that. And then he'll show images of people starving. You know, that's just one example. He'll also talk about incredibly mundane things, which actually I think is one of the wonderful things about his show. So for instance, he'll talk about sort of the way people park their cars. And he'll say, you know, there's a careless way to do this. And a lot of what he's doing is really sort of basic civics. He's saying, you know, be a responsible person. But he's talking about that in an Islamic language.
2: What are some of his novel production techniques?
9: They're a kind of cinema verite type film techniques. But sometimes he's wearing jeans and a T-shirt. But, I mean, he looks like an American program in some ways. So he does sort of candid camera type stuff. You know, he'll, for instance, they had in one of the shows, they had, I think it was a a man who pretends to accidentally drop a wallet so that you test the reactions of these people. Will they give the wallet back to the old man who dropped it or will they just take it. So if the guy tries to just take it, they quickly stop him and say, excuse me, that's, well, it belongs to that guy. But then they say, why didn't you give it back to them? Is that the kind of thing that the Prophet Muhammad would have done?
2: Kind of like a religious sting, isn't it? Exactly. You've written that Shigari and, and the other satellite sheiks are getting criticism from both sides. On the right, hardline critics say that he's too Western. Secularists on the left say he could be something like a gateway drug to more extremist Islam?
9: Sure. Many of the people to whom he's appealing are young, relatively well-off people who would go to college and might adopt a more or less secular worldview, but he's essentially Islamizing them. Now, many of them, of course, if they follow his instructions strictly, they would become moderate Muslims open to the world just the way he is. But there are also people who fear that, not because of him, but because of the trend toward extremism across the Arab world, toward Islamism in general, that he may end up becoming a stepping stone. In other words, that once you've adopted a more Islamic way of life, you then become vulnerable to extremists who say, hey, you know, you're on the right path, but you haven't gone far enough yet.
2: You know, Robert, you know the region and I don't, but I just think that notion of the secularists doesn't make any sense. You think you can box people off from Islam by keeping a moderate sheik or all of them off the air?
9: I think you have a point that if you try to sort of uh, appeal to these people with a totally secular point of view, you're probably not going to do very well because it's too late for that. The region has gone through a tremendous religious revival in recent decades, and you've got to meet people halfway, and, and that's where he is.
2: Do you think that people like Ahmed al Shagari can make a difference?
9: Sure, absolutely. I've talked to a lot of people who who watch his show and admire him, who seem to feel that they were faced with a very difficult choice. They felt the world seemed to be divided for them into sort of a really secular path, where they felt a bit like they were abandoning their culture and their traditions, or a really hard-line, tough Islamist, I hate the West kind of stance. And what they like about him is that he gives them a middle path.
2: Robert, thank you very much
9: pleasure to be
2: with you. Robert Wirth is Middle East correspondent for The New York Times. We reached Shigari in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. The 35-year-old Muslim televangelist told us that he became extremely religious during a seven-year stay in California after, shall we say, a hyper-secular period. He says his message of moderation grew out of the two extremes he lived while in the U.S
11: you know, a pleasure-based life, uh, zero spirituality, just living day by day and having fun. And then when I switched, I switched to the total opposite, meaning I just cared about spirituality and religion, and I guess the the balance is what I believe I reached. Uh, Of course, everyone thinks he's balanced at the end of the day. Even extremists describe themselves as being balanced. But I believe now I'm in a balance where religion helps me be a better uh, manager, a better husband, a better student.
2: were in the states at the time that you decided to become much more religious you were also watching a lot of television can you tell me what the american media taught you if anything about what you're doing now
11: yeah that education if it's gonna be portrayed in media it has to come within an entertaining format
2: how does that play out in the programs that you've done
11: It plays out, first of all, to have a short program, because we're talking to an MTV generation. They're used to video clips that end in five minutes. I think I heard it, or I read it in one of the American books, that they have the strategy of not focusing more than 20 or 30 seconds on the same frame or something like that, and I'm using that. We don't focus on anything more than 30 seconds. Secondly, it's not just a person talking to camera and preaching. We're using in a lot of the programs the candid camera format, which is an American format, to show certain morals. So it's a back and forth kind of fast-paced, 10-minute short, right to the point, no lectury attitude.
2: Tell me what the message is.
11: The message is live a balanced life. The same message as what Plato, Aristotle, uh, all the philosophers, the the prophets said, be good in this life, never hurt anyone, and uh, perfect your work. And eventually this will uh, come back to you as good on earth and after death. There's also one very important topic I always cover, which is respecting other religions and other cultures and uh, opening dialogue with them. Uh, And not having me uh, versus the world mentality. I mean, I'm not coming up with something new, it's just I'm packaging it in a way that the youth can accept and understand. Do you
2: think that there's something missing in the spiritual media diet for young people there that it's hard for them to relate their religion to the reality of their own lives?
11: Yes, because some shows that are available are put in a, let me say, boring, monologue, one-hour guy-talking way. It doesn't capture what they're seeing in other kinds of shows. They're watching American Idol. They're watching Oprah. They're watching all kinds of shows that are just attracting their emotions, and the other programs are not delivering that. So I'm trying to cover that gap. I'm trying to give them something where they can watch and have fun.
2: You have been referred to in, in news reports as one of the satellite sheikhs. What do you think of that term?
11: First of all, I'm not a sheikh. Sheikh is an Arab word that means like a rabbi, a priest. And I always say in my programs that I'm not a scholar and I'm not a sheikh. I'm not a priest. I'm just a simple human being who has hopes for the Arab and Islamic world to improve in all levels economically, financially, socially. Now, that doesn't necessarily make me a sheikh. It's just a person speaking his mind out.
2: Do you have to tiptoe around certain issues so as not to upset the authorities or the executives at the satellite channels that broadcast your show?
11: Um, I, I don't mention names when I tackle any topic. I do not mention a country, and I don't mention a certain government, and I do not mention names. Therefore, I can get by talking about some taboo topics. So until now, it's uh, been okay. So pray for me, at class.
2: <laughs> how are you dealing with the fame?
11: Yeah, dealing with the fame. I'm reading a lot of books on psychology <laughs> on how to deal with the fame. I'm not going to deny that I enjoy it. It's a human nature to enjoy acknowledgement and appreciation. Uh, however, I'm trying to not make it get to me to the extent that I get used to such a life. Because, you know, things are easy for you, they give you discounts somewhere, if there's no reservation in a restaurant, they let you in, you know, these kind of things. Uh, People come up to you and they want pictures, so I'm just trying to enjoy it and not let it get to me.
2: What show are you working on now?
11: Uh, We're doing uh, the fifth season of uh, the show Hawater Reflections, which will air in Ramadan, and interestingly, this uh, season it will be all from Japan. So we have 30 episodes about the Japanese culture, the Japanese morals and manners, and the Japanese uh, work ethics. And I'm just aiming at showing the Arab world how they are implementing a lot of the things that we're just preaching. Uh, For example, we preach in our schools that cleanliness is uh, a a major part of the believer. However, you see the streets in the Arab world, a lot of it, it's just a mess because we're not practicing this virtue of cleanliness. I'm showing the Arab world how the Japanese were able to have extremely clean streets and how they are implementing these morals.
2: You're talking about how these moral prescriptions offered by the Prophet are being carried out in an entirely non-Islamic environment.
11: Yes, these commandments are universal. So you don't have to believe in Prophet Muhammad to be clean. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just trying to make the Arab world feel jealous from the Japanese streets. I mean, I asked the Arab world, if the Prophet Muhammad came today, who will he see implementing his teachings more, the Japanese or the Muslim world? A big question mark. And I say that, uh, uh, by the way, also about the U.S. Most of the uh, prophetic teachings are practiced in the U.S. much more than they are in the Islamic world. Our problem is we focus on two major things and we just shove everything else aside. We focus on alcohol and uh, sexual issues. So we see the U.S. they're open in these two arenas, so we say we're better than them because we don't have those. However, we forget that these are two out of a hundred. Barack Obama's uh, presidency is a great implementation of a human virtue that Prophet Muhammad and Jesus uh, before him promoted, which is all humans are created equal. When you see an an African-American leading the most powerful country in the world, out of election, not out of force, and it cannot be implemented anywhere else in the world, anywhere else, this needs to be acknowledged.
2: He said, son, when you grow up, would
1: you be the savior?
6: An abstinence-only education is ruined by a trip to the zoo. It's The Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The parents of 14-year-old Lily Dirksen always kept her out of health and sex ed classes and tried to provide her with a safe upbringing. But after a family trip to the local zoo today, the Dirksens' hope of keeping their daughter ignorant of the biological act of sex began unraveling at the giraffe compound. Father Nathan Dirksen. We scooted her off to another section, but the the, the chimpanzees were humping and it was everywhere. Though Dirksen has consulted the Bible about the problem, he says... There is nothing in it about accidentally letting your kid see a couple of masturbating Wolverines. Doyle Redland for the other one. I believe in miracles.
10: Way from
7: you sex of thing sex a thing, you yeah. I believe in miracles. Since you came along, you sex a thing.
10: best-selling book, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, is now out in paperback. Please welcome the program, Jeff Charlotte. Uh, nice to see you. Thanks for coming by. It's uh, uh, The Family. We should explain why this is sort of, it's out in paperback now, but it's back in the forefront of, uh, of people's minds. Uh, this revolves around a group uh, called, I guess, the family. Although I don't know if they refer, do they refer to themselves as a family? They do. They do internally. They call
8: themselves the family, known sometimes as the fellowship or the prayer breakfast folks. But the movement itself
10: is the family. And and they run a, a place called the C Street House. Yeah. Yeah. Which is where some senators go uh, that have recently been in the news and governors for uh, um, <laughs> help. To help. Yeah. yeah. With. The, um, so so uh, explain to me what your involvement is and how you got involved with this, this group. Well, uh, several years ago,
8: uh, I was working on another book about religion. A friend came to me and said, I think my brother's joined a cult. Can you talk to him? And uh, <laughs> so I did. And he said, look, to understand it, you have to see it yourself. Um, And so I did. I went and moved in with this group for uh, about a month. Uh, In the course of that, I actually got to visit the C Street House, where I met Senator John Ensign, one of the senators who Mm. uh, has been in the news. Did you get to have sex with a lot of women? (laughs) Uh, Well, no. We were being groomed for leadership, so uh, we Uh were really there to serve the congressmen. Um, uh, Not in that sense. uh, I... I, there, w- there was an element of it. The interesting thing about the C Street House that hasn't come out in any of the news about these three congressmen who, who are involved in this is uh, not only these all these young guys, I was then a little bit younger, who were um, uh, sort of there to be of service to these congressmen, um, but the, the main... Not of service service. It's <laughs> terrible. Don't mean, we're talking about high means, like, to help in the here. kitchen yes. and
10: that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the kitchen... To hel- help them in the kitchen. <laughs> That's... It was it was to serve the men. The
8: kitchen okay. help is actually reserved for women. In fact, there's a house. Is uh, that true? Yeah, yeah. There's eight c- Christian College women who are assigned to be sort of a maid service for the C Street house, which is one of the things that surprise hasn't come out in the news. The group actually believes, and internally they believe in this idea. I'm not making this up. They call it male headship, the idea that as Jesus is to his followers, so women should be
10: to the men in their lives. They should be submissive. Well, there is, and by the way, I think the crowd took that very well. <laughs> And, and there is a sense, of it, it's, it's almost sort of a, a Calvinist ordaining of their, that, that God has selected them for leadership and therefore their behavior is not the issue, yeah. it's more their, their fealty to Jesus. Exactly. Well, they're fealty to the family. To the fa- Oh, okay. To the family. Uh, they,
8: uh, they believe that, uh, you know, the group began with this idea that God came to them with a new revelation. Christianity has been getting it wrong for 2,000 years by talking about the poor and the weak and so on. That Jesus' message was actually not meant for most of us. It was meant for this select few, like
10: Governor Stanford and Senator Ensign, uh, who are... Why, why weren't they then specifically named in the Bible? Because... Much of what Jesus said translated... How how do other Christians then view this interpretation? It's actually
8: been one of the great things since the book came out, um, is that there's uh, there's been even some self-described fundamentalists. I've done some Christian Right Radio where they're as disturbed by this group as anybody else. Here's a group that believes in doing politics behind closed doors, that regularly invokes as a leadership model Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. They say the three men who best understood the New Testament in the 20th century were Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. They'll say they're evil men. Don't get us wrong. They're evil men. But they understood that the New
10: Testament, it's not about love or mercy or justice. It's about power. So this is not, th- th- this is This is not a fundamentalist group. This is not a a, a Christian group. This is a a different interpretation of Jesus' teachings, and they're applying it to, to political life. And their plan is, and this is the part that I think is, is interesting. What's their plan ultimately? Well, unlike most Christian right groups, they're not
8: really that concerned with domestic issues. Um, they began in the Great Depression with the idea that all economics are uh, should be interpreted through the Bible. So they believe in something they sometimes call biblical capitalism. Uh, the idea that any attempt to regulate the market is interfering with the invisible hand, sort of very literally. They take that 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 the idea of the market very literally, and at the same time that they're called to be involved. foreign affairs and that's really what they've been doing for about the last 50 years is cultivating foreign leaders leaders usually dictators, strong men, those whom they think are chosen for their country by God uh,
10: and they can then bring into a relationship with American power. But they, are, they don't mention that when they're campaigning, like when they go out, like when, when, when like when Governor Sanford would be out there on the baby, like I'm gonna help people of South Carolina and also uh, I think uh, you know the guy who's running Singapore right now is a good man, I'm gonna help him out and uh, things are going great in uh, Myanmar. And I'm gonna... there, is, there is
8: there is one honest man in the, in the Senate and the family that's Senator James Inhofe of, of Oklahoma Oklahoma, who actually uh, released a video in which he bragged about taking 20 missionary trips to Africa uh, to promote the political philosophy of Jesus as taught to him by the family. And uh, unlike most politicians who travel on the family's dime, it's not registered as a lobby, but it acts like a lobby, he said, I don't do that. He says, I travel on the dime, your dime, the the Senate Armed Services Committee.
10: He's an honest man, he tells us what he's doing. You know who else is involved in this, I think? Hadassah. (laughs) The family is on the bookshelves now. It's a wild ride, baby. Thanks for coming on the show.
7: organization that finds itself at the center of two major Republican sex scandals this summer. The group is called The Family, and they run a house that a number of members of Congress live in in Washington, D.C. It's called C Street. Now we've learned this summer that both Senator John Ensign of Nevada and Governor Mark Sanford of South Carolina counseling of some sort at C Street while they were both carrying on their extramarital affairs. As C Street has become an integral part of the story of those two scandals, the group's trademark extreme secrecy appears to be starting to crack. First, we have new comments to report about the family and C Street from Republican Congressman Zach Wamp of Tennessee. Congressman Wamp has lived at the C Street house for 12 years. After the Ensign scandal broke, he spoke to the Knoxville News Sentinel about it and they reported, quote, the C Street residents have all agreed they won't talk about their private living arrangements, Wamp said, and he intends to honor that pact, quoting him, I hate it that John Ensign lives in the house and this happened because it opens up all these kinds of questions, Wamp said, but he said, I'm not going to be the guy who goes out and talks. After we read that quote from the Knoxville News Sentinel on this show a few days ago, Congressman Wamp complained to us, insisting that those who live in the House are not actually sworn to secrecy, even though that was the clear implication of what he told that Knoxville paper. We followed up with the Knoxville News Sentinel, and again, they say that Congressman Wamp's office has made no complaint to them like the one he's made to us. He's still only complaining to us for broadcasting what the paper printed. Now, Congressman Wamp has given another interview about the family, this time to the Chattanooga Times Free Press. They asked him specifically about the C Street House.
9: It's a place that, be, that people can go off the hill and in a bipartisan way get along and, mm. you know, hold each other accountable. But it's not like there's really nothing to talk about, so, except that that's what we chose to do.
6: Well, it's a, I mean, it seems like, it, by all accounts, it seems to be a secretive group. That people but it's not. I'm just
9: about. telling you, it's where people live, and you uh-huh. go there to fellowship, and, you know, we, we happen to have the common denominator of our faith. Uh-huh. But that's a good thing.
7: It's a good thing. There's there's really nothing to talk about. We hold each other accountable. We're all sworn not to talk about this thing, but it's not like that means it's secretive.
9: They didn't want to violate people's private decisions to come there. And you know what happens when you share and the media writes about it? Nobody comes and the whole thing evaporates. That's why. It's not secretive. It's that that's the only way something like
2: this can exist. That's why it happens that way, man. So it's not like anybody's trying to hide anything. It's so that people will feel like they can
7: It's not secretive. It's that that's the only way something like this can exist. It's not secretive. It's just that if we don't keep secrets, nobody will come talk to us. Nobody will join. So they all knew about Governor Sanford's affair in Argentina and Senator Ensign's affair with his campaign treasurer. They knew about those affairs for months while those affairs were kept secret from everyone else. Now yet another C-Streeter is coming forward. His name is former Republican Congressman Steve Largent of Oklahoma. He lived at the C-Street House while he was in Congress. He says he still participates in weekly dinners and discussions there. Mr. Largent now tells the Tulsa World newspaper that he came back to C-Street to participate in a confrontation between C-Street members and John Ensign about his extramarital affair. He says, quote, we are all very good friends. He was wandering off the reservation. Largent said the group who confronted Ensign left unsure of its impact, but eventually the meeting produced a, quote, good result. It turned out to be very constructive. Now, Mr. Largent denies that anyone at C Street suggested that John Ensign pay off his mistress or his mistress's family. But he does provide us a little more insight into the internal accountability that's at work in this mysterious group. Accountability, which it now seems, may be designed to replace... The members of this group's sense of accountability to anyone outside the group. Mr. Largent said each of the men, in, excuse me, each of the men who live in the house has given others license to confront each other if there's something going on that shouldn't be going on in someone's life. Asked if Senator Ensign and Mark Sanford should resign in light of their, affa- in, in light of their affairs, Mr. Largent said, "Quote: First of all, my biggest concern is about their personal well-being." and their family's well-being. Beyond that, whether they stay in office or not, I think that's a calculation that only they can make. My biggest concern is about their personal well-being. When it came to President Clinton's affair back in 1998, Steve Largent was a congressman then. And when he was a congressman, he had a much different view of such situations. Saying at the time, quote, I don't think any reasonable reasonable people could say that the president should not resign. I think even reading the president's own censure resolution, you can't come away with any other conclusion than that this president should resign. It's the honorable thing to do. The honorable thing to do, apparently, is what matters when you're not a member of the family. When you are a member of the family, forget honor. It's your personal well-being that matters now. In both the John Ensign case and the Mark Sanford case, the more we learn about the theology of this secret group, its reason for being, the way it operates, the more the group seems to explain how these politicians were able to involve many, many other members of Congress and even former members of Congress in keeping their affairs secret and why both men who had called on other politicians to resign when they'd had affairs are themselves refusing to resign themselves now that they have been caught doing the same thing. There's still a lot we don't know about C Street, but the picture that's beginning to emerge is of a group whose members essentially agree to disclose their secrets to one another as an alternative to disclosing them to anyone else. Members who agree not to talk about the family, but who are accountable for their actions to the family and to nobody else. Democracy, right?
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. This is the last time you're going to have to hear me say it. Thursday, August 20th. Thursday, August 20th. Thursday, August 20th. As of this posting, Thursday, August 20th is tomorrow. So, again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, welcome to the show. Or thanks for paying attention this time. I just wanted to let you know that Thursday, August 20th is the day that in an attempt to get more publicity for the show... Have it reach more people, get the great progressive news out to more ears. I am urging the listeners of this show to launch a letter writing campaign, essentially, not literally, to the iTunes Music Store. And the way we do this is on Thursday, August 20th, just go and leave a five star review. And in your written review, you know, you mark it with five stars and then you give your review a little title. And then in the body of your message, say whatever you want to say about the show. And be sure to mention that you want to see the best of the left listed on the homepage of the podcast store in iTunes. This is a huge experiment. We have no idea if it'll work, if it'll get the attention of the humans behind the scenes at iTunes. We just don't know, but it's absolutely worth a shot. So if you like the show, you want more people to be exposed to it. If the show gets listed on the homepage of iTunes, uh, on the the homepage of the podcast store on iTunes, to be fair, that'll be huge. You know, lots and lots of people will see it. Lots of people will be interested in the title and say, hmm, what's that? Maybe I should check it out. And all those people will uh, get to hear the same show that you know and love and, and in all likelihood think other people should be exposed to. So thanks in advance so much for your support on this project. I'm hoping it'll be a big success. We will all see for ourselves very shortly if we pull it off. Now, of course, normally I thank members. I I don't happen to have the member list in front of me right now, but you guys know how much I uh, love you and love the support that you give the show. Members donate as little as $5 a month to keep the show going twice a week before the show had any members the best we could do was one show a week but with the support of the members and that support giving me a little bit more time to work on the show has been uh, dedicated to returning it to you twofold so now you get the show eight days a month thanks to the members so thank you very much for your support on that And that's it for today. So stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook or by signing up for our email notifications. Uh, Support the show by leaving a five-star review in the iTunes store tomorrow, Thursday, August 20th. If you're interested, you can get the show on your smartphone without having to sync it with your computer by going to stitcher.com and you get all the information on the show by visiting the show notes. You'll find the links to all of the sources and the music used in the episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members of course, from bestoftheleft.com The only maker
2: that you wanna
8: is the we'll take you out any open door, this is not my
2: life, it's just a fond farewell to a
7: friend, it's not what I'm like.